You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio, and today I'll be speaking with Chief of EMS, James Booth. Chief, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So where do we start? How about we start in the beginning? You started in EMS before the merger in Correct. 1983. Correct. August of 83. So it's almost a year before I started. Mm-hmm. And where did you work when you started? I got out of the academy and got assigned to uh, Station 15 on uh, 96th Street, which is uh, co-located with uh, Metropolitan Hospital. Mm. How long were you there? I was probably there um, four months, and then I got reassigned to the Bronx Station. I'm sorry, Station oh. 23 at the time. That's oh, that's the, right. The, now the, it's Station 20. Station 20. You know, sometimes the numbers, I get confused myself. Yes. When did you become a paramedic? Um, I became a paramedic in January of 1988. And did you go back to the Bronx, or did I you work did. somewhere I else? I went back to the Bronx vacation relief. I was covering uh, vacancies and doing the uh, student slot on various paramedic units throughout North Manhattan and the Bronx. And so ultimately, you begin to climb the ranks from there, right? Yes, yes, I did. I took the uh, exam to be a, a lieutenant when I was an EMT before paramedic school and got promoted. Actually, interesting circumstances, got promoted in April of, I believe, 1989, and January of 1990, I decided my love for paramedicine precluded me from being a lieutenant any further, and I took a voluntary demotion back mm. to paramedic. I spent the next two years being a paramedic in the streets of the Bronx, really, really enjoying it. So now, eventually, you climb the ranks, and in 2015? 2015, Chief Leonard had a conversation with me and asked me if I would accept the position of chief of EMS. I gladly accepted. It was out of the blue. I had planned on remaining a division commander for the remainder of my employment here, and I think it's a very nice cap on a career. I agree. And by then, you had about 30 years, right? I had about 32, roughly about 32. So in the interim of all of these promotions and an illustrious career, you're a member of the the USAR team. Yes, I had been a uh, member of the Urban Search and Rescue uh, team that was started in the city in 1991 or 1992 under the leadership of Ray Downey, mm-hmm. who was, uh, as you know, killed on 9-11 right. uh, in the collapse. So you were on the team from the very beginning? I was one of the original team members. Mm-hmm. I had what I like to call a good 10-year run with them, right. and I got to go to many places. I got to go to the Atlanta Olympics. We were there for the uh, bombing that occurred. I went to Dominican Republic, ended up out on the water on the Marine uh, units out at Flight 800, providing supportive care and a host of other in-city deployments for various things. And some of those are pre-deployments? Some of those are pre-staged, like the Atlanta Olympics were pre-staged. There were three teams, one from the East Coast and two from the West Coast. Obviously, post-event, we respond as part of the Urban Search and Rescue Group to uh, an area that has suffered some sort of a catastrophic event, Hurricane George, Oklahoma City, and the like. Right. So let's talk a little bit about Oklahoma City and what that experience was like. Oklahoma City was, for me, it was like Super Bowl Sunday. Everything was game day. All of your training came together. We were notified that we would most likely be deployed to Oklahoma City on the day of the event on the 19th. Later on in the day, we were told to report to uh, Floyd Bennett Field. We went from there to Kennedy Airport, where the military flew us into Tinker Air Force Base. We got to the site, and um, I took a look at the site, and 
I was in complete disbelief of what a vehicle improvised explosive device or, or a truck bomb right. could do. Right. I couldn't believe the devastation. That's the first time seeing anything like that? Um, Domestic terrorism? Yes. We had the World Trade Center in 1993 right. where we had a similar type device. We had a lot of patients that day. Mm -hmm. We also had six fatalities. Right. But it was nothing along the lines of the Trade Center was an enclosed circumstance pretty much in a sub-basement. In 1993? In 1993. Right. In 1995, Oklahoma City was out in the open. You could see the destruction of this device. I remember when you guys came back, you, you all seemed very uh, shell-shocked, emotionally uh, drained. It was emotionally draining, as you stated, and mainly because when I got there, I mean, I was a paramedic. I was a medical specialist on the urban search and rescue team along with three other paramedics and two physicians. And when, you know, we got our boots on the ground, the New York team thought we were in rescue mode. And when we got to the site and we got our assignment, it was recovery. And um, we had to shift gears and keep each other safe. And the the whole focus now was on how do we get the remains and give them back to their families? And how do we do that in a dignified manner? Mm -hmm. And um, we tried very hard to do that. I think we were successful in that because now it becomes about the healing of the family members and the healing of Oklahoma City in general. Mm -hmm. Because obviously the people we were managing were beyond any assistance at all that we could provide. Right. How long were you there? We were there seven days. And I look back on it now and it seems like a very small period in my life, only a seven-day period. And uh, when I was there, it just, it just, I never even thought about how many days we were there and when are we going home and when are we getting demobilized. It, it was just, you were so into what the mission was. Mm -hmm. So seven days, believe it or not, went very quickly, although I was oblivious to it. Mm. For our listeners uh, who don't understand the USAR team, particularly the New York team, sure, it's made up of fire, EMS, and police department members. So at the time, it was NYPD, FDNY, and HHC EMS. Yes, that's correct. So it was a 72-person team. Health and hospitals provided the two physicians and four paramedics, and the police department and the fire department provided the communication specialists, rescue specialists, search specialists, structural specialists. The police department provided the canines for search and the various other functions of the team that were formed amongst the three agencies. We actually were three separate entities that when we were federally mobilized, we became one group. And the physicians were medical directors from EMS? Correct. The two physicians on deployment were medical directors, but the cadre that we drew from were from, at the time, would be what is now the Office of Medical Affairs, right. uh, which were the medical control physicians, the oversight physicians for the EMS personnel in the field. So how did you come to grips with what you had seen? How did you get past it and, and find yourself able to function fully again without being crippled by this experience right, emotionally? Well, I think that one of the important things I did was I allowed myself to feel it. I allowed myself to understand it or try to understand it, but I very cautiously allowed myself to feel it. And that involved a certain degree of emotion. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that was not the 
behavior of the last week we were in Oklahoma City, we were professional rescuers. We were called to do a job and your game face was on and you were 100% every day. But yet when you get back, now you have to be a little more human and you have to understand that you have emotions, you have feelings. And you need to know that if you don't manage those things appropriately, you won't be able to go out again and be of any assistance to anybody. Mm-hmm. So that's how I dealt with it. So I, I would imagine for each other, you end up being a support network. Yes, yes, we did. And to this day, when, when I see the other paramedics, I see uh, Charlie Wells and uh, Ray Bonner and uh, Cole Tramontana, there's a bond there that just is inseparable. It, re- it really is. Have you deployed to other disasters with them as part of the team? Not with those three uh, paramedics, but with other paramedics. Basically, the team is, as you become more experienced, they mix the team to let the junior people on the team get experience. And so basically, you're mentoring Mm -hmm. the younger group of of team members so they can learn what you learned from the person before you. So I sort of transitioned into that role a little later on in my tenure with the group. Like I said, I thought it was a great 10-year run. I'm sure plenty of people wish they had been in your shoes to have that level of experience. I felt blessed. You know, I mean, I I really loved being a paramedic on the ambulance. I mean, for me, back of the bus is where it's at. I like where the rubber meets the road when we are actually dealing with patients and putting your hands on somebody in order to manage their medical circumstances. Something in me kept me close to that. And somehow or another, I took an exam and got interested in other things, and here I am in an administrative role, which is really different for me. Yes, it is. So I presume that you take this experience through each next experience, this experience in Oklahoma City. I do. And it's more important to me now that I, I know and I've felt it and I've been through the experiences of what the rescuers and, and patient care providers have in the field. And I bring that back to my daily Mm decision-making. Every single day, you know, the members of the fire department are out in the street dealing with all sorts of emergencies, from medical emergencies to structural fires to gas leaks to vehicle accidents. And when I make decisions today, I think about my experiences were, what does that person need to do their job better? How can I help support them? Yeah, I may go to an incident and I may be the medical branch director or I may be responsible for the EMS segment of it. But I'm not the person who's actually doing the job. The person who's actually doing the job are the EMTs and paramedics and the officers who arrive. And they're the people that are initially setting things up and and, and getting things going. And they're the people that are managing these patients or displaced individuals that need our services. And I like to think of it as they're the orchestra and I'm just the band leader. They let me feel as if we're moving things in the right direction. Just by their showing up and doing their job the way they do, things just flow. Mm -hmm. They're really, really good at what they do. I agree. So in 93, you responded to the World Trade Center incident? I did, I did. We were in the early phases of putting together the uh, urban search and rescue team, and we took the members that were rostered for the team and we put them down at the site. We really, didn't do much of anything as far as urban search and rescue was. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of standby because 
the work was done by the 911 units right. that responded on the day of. Mm -hmm. You know, the ambulance personnel and the fire personnel and the police that responded on the day of uh, the event. I was there later in the evening, mm. and for the most part, my involvement was in a support role. But yeah, I did, I, I did go to the 93 bombing. And then you respond again on 9-11 in 2001. Oh, yeah. There aren't too many uh, people who's, who can actually say they responded in 93 and 2001. Yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, I don't know either, yeah, other than longevity maybe. Yeah. yeah. So what, were you, what was your role on 9-11? What, what rank were you at the time, and what did you do? On 9-11, I was the uh, commanding officer of uh, EMS Station 20. So I was a captain in the Bronx. And my responsibility uh, that day early on, I was actually on vacation. And I recall, recall my sister calling me up and saying, hey, what's going on at the Trade Center? I said, I have no idea. I'm getting ready to go in my kayak. So um, I turn on the TV and I look at the Trade Center and... Uh, I knew we were going to have a tough day. Was that the first plane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I got in the car, and uh, I went over to my ambulance station because I, I knew that we were going to be putting everything we had in the street. So I go over to I went over to Station 20 and um, organized what could get organized and got every vehicle fueled and staffed and made sure we took names and where everybody was going. Mm. Accountability was very, very important at that point to me. I wanted to make sure my people came back in one piece. And then I, I was at the ambulance station and I get a phone call from somebody that their partner is missing. And I still hadn't gotten my head around how significant this event really was. Hmm. And then to hear reports of missing members and it really, really, like, until I got there and, and actually saw the enormity of it. It, it was beyond me. So I was on the last ambulance out of Jacoby, which is Station 20, and uh, Bobby Eustace, who's a firefighter in 27 truck now, drove me and uh, a couple of other people that were in the back of the ambulance. We had an off-duty firefighter, and we had a nurse, and I think we had another EMT in the back of the bus. And we went down to the Trade Center site. Had the towers collapsed already? Yeah. Yeah, both towers were down. Seven World Trade was still up. A, a lot of fire and, and mm. a, a lot of activity going on when we got down there. Yeah. Were you monitoring the radio transmissions during that time? I was. I was listening to Citywide. Extremely chaotic. We could not get through to Citywide. We weren't even logged on to the mobile data terminals. And mm. essentially, you know, other than the logbook at the ambulance station, Nobody really knew what truck we were in and where we were going. Right, you didn't have a radio designation? We had no radio point. designation. We didn't even have portable radios. So um, we took 2nd Avenue down, and we stopped once to pick up a firefighter who flagged us in the street, and we took him to 51st Street so he could get to his firehouse. For the life of me, I don't know who he was. But he was an off-duty person, and he wanted to get to the firehouses uh, as much as we wanted to get to the Trade Center. Right. So. Um, we helped him out with that. Mm -hmm. So we stopped, he jumped out of the bus and ran down the block and we kept moving. So you finally arrive at the site? Yeah, we get to the site and um, we try to check in with somebody because we know that when we go to a mass casualty incident, which this certainly was, you check in with somebody and you let somebody know you're there and right. you receive an assignment and you go do that assignment. We didn't have anybody to check in with. Mm -hmm. It was, I don't wanna say pandemonium, but there was definitely a lack of structure when we got there. 
And I mean, I was a captain, so people are looking at me, mm-hmm. and I'm looking to look for somebody else, right. and there isn't anybody else. So my instruction to the group of people that were around me, and then they weren't all Bronx guys and gals. They were from all over the place, all over the city, was let's figure out who's here, let's stay in one place until we get orders, and let's do everything we can to not get hurt. Because like I said, you know, the safety of the, of the guys is, and gals is paramount to me. So um, that's what we did. Then we managed to somehow find Chief Kowalczyk, who was the Brooklyn Borough Commander at the time for EMS. Mm-hmm. And he had a little more knowledge about what occurred. But again, he had just been through a horrific event. He had survived the collapse. And he helped organize and do things. But yeah, there was a definite lack of structure when I got there. And not for any reason except that Everybody was either dead or injured. Other than treating each other, there really weren't any other patients. No, I didn't encounter. I didn't encounter any patients. I, I saw rescuers, I saw firefighters, I saw cops that had that you know farm bodies in their eyes, right. some respiratory compromise. I didn't see anything in the long uh, lines of civilian casualties from where I was. How long did you stay down there that day? Um, we didn't go home. I didn't go home for three days. We ate whatever we could get when we were down there. If we were hungry, most of us didn't eat for a day or two. And I remember sleeping in a stairway at Borough Manhattan Community College, either one or two nights, sleeping on the landing. And it wasn't restful sleep, obviously, and it wasn't long sleep. It was just enough for you to re-energize and get yourself back into the program because you didn't want to be away from it because you knew people may potentially need your help. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. We maximized it. And slowly but surely, the other members of the Urgent Search and Rescue Group, the medical team, managed to, to pull together somehow. And we managed to sort of try to set something up in one of the schoolyards with our uh, USAR equipment that got to the scene. I remember Commissioner Von Essen coming by and, and giving us some, some information very quickly, very busy guy that day. And we tried to set up something that we knew the urban search and rescue teams were going to be utilized in this environment. Right. We just didn't know half Oz was dead. So I think it turned out to be 51 members of uh, the New York City urban search and rescue team were, were killed that day. And um, we tried to move forward. And we tried to do the best we could with what we had. So we had Dr. Gonzalez. We had Dr. Aceda. We had a few other physicians helping us out, but really Glenn and Dario were the, were the spearhead of the medical team. Mm-hmm. And we supported the missions of the uh, firefighters and the police in any way we could that night. Well, you're putting two medics with the team to go and, and search what they were going to search and basically looking out for them and, and managing any people that we came across. I hate the fact that I'm getting emotional. Wow. You know, just when you think you're not going to get emotional anymore, you do, Yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But you look at it and you say, I'm the chief of EMS. <laughs> I don't get emotional. You know, my job is not to be emotional. My job is to be ready to go, on point, squared away, and to be a role model for the members. I think the fact that you can be emotional about it and uh, do your job in spite of that. Absolutely. I think that makes you the best role model. Well... You, you, you try your best, you know. I mean, I look at Commissioner Nigro, and, and I look at the leadership he provides. And I've seen him sometimes get a little welled up, 
And, um, you know, with a, if a man of, of that stature and that experience can still allow himself to be human and still do his job, well, then I guess I can too. I agree. I think that um, the worst thing that can happen to anybody in our field in particular when you're dealing with patients is that you turn off so much so that you're not affected at all. And well, you, you need have to do no that capacity to be for empathy. You need to do that to be functional at the time. At the time, right. At the time, you need to be completely task-oriented. Mm-hmm. Because if you start letting emotions get into it or fears get into it, you're not going to be any help to anybody. That's right. So that's where you have to put things in check. You're correct. You need to be squared away. But when that is done, you wonder to yourself, who rescues the rescuer? Hmm. Who's responsible for that? And a lot of the times that's our families, that's our support system. And those are the people that are tasked with, with our well-being. So um, you hope to have a strong support system. If you don't, I very strongly suggest you get one. I agree with you. What did you do, speaking of um, that sort of downtime, what did you do the first day you had off, you remember? I know when I came home, the first thing I did was go see my parents Mm. um, because they were extremely concerned about me. Then I went to see my sister to tell her that uh, we were going to go look for her uh, brother-in-law because my brother-in-law's twin, John DeLara, was a cop in truck two, and he was missing. So I told her we were going to do our best, and... um, we did. We found them six months later. You know, you don't imagine in a city of eight and a half million people that an event like that could get so personal. Did you continue working down there the entire recovery period? I worked for, I, I did 14 days there. On the 14th day, Chief McCracken, who was the chief of EMS at the time, was looking at citywide staffing and was uh, looking to redeploy us back to some of our, our assignments. So, you know. The World Trade Center event was one event in a city of 8 million people. And while we needed to manage that event, we still needed to manage the rest of the city. So we still had the stabbings, the shootings, the cardiac arrests, the pedestrians struck by the car, the drownings. We still had a whole 911 system to manage. Mm -hmm. Me as a captain, I was thinking about Station 20. Chief McCracken, as the chief of EMS, was thinking about the city of New York. Mm -hmm. So he needed to get us back into positions that were going to be effectively managing the system for the entire city. Nobody wanted to admit anything on the 14th day that we were going to do, that it was recovery. You know, we had known that people in earthquakes had survived much longer than that. But I guess the leadership at the time had the, the, the foresight to understand and to know their limitations and to redirect their their energies into what needed to get done. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. So 14 days. There are sentinel events in your career that, you know, are very near and dear to you because of the way you feel about them and and your involvement in them. And I've said more than once, there's only two ribbons on my coat that I really care about. Oklahoma City and a World Trade Center ribbon. The other ones are nice. They're really good recognition, but... I wish I didn't have to wear any of them. It's fair to say that these are life-defining moments. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think that um, it helps to make you a better leader for EMS. 
it helps in that you're able to talk about it and you're able to educate the younger members and you know understand that they are eventually going to go through something similar. Whatever it is, if it's that house fire with three or four kids in cardiac arrest and it's you and the firefighters, you're by yourself, you're the only ambulance and, and you and the CFR company and you know, you're going to experience that. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with that? And that's a, a regular event in your course of duty. And then you have these terrorist attacks or these really sentinel events. And how do you manage them? And how do you continue with your day-to-day -day life? And how do you keep your family together? And how do you not be a complete mess in front of your kids? So those are the things that we need to look out for our members. I mean, mm -hmm. professionally, they're trained really, really well. I mean, I think we're probably some of the best equipped, best trained fire department in the country, if not the world. But it's the non-professional part of the job where our members go home and they have a family and they have to manage that. And um, if we don't help them manage what they experience in the course of their duties, then they're probably not going to be too fun to be around and they're probably going to be a little bit challenged when they're outside this environment. Which is interesting because it's what makes us want to come back to the environment. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, I remember being on the ambulance uh, and I didn't want to take my three-day swing. I, I was afraid I would miss something. So I would come back after three days, and the first thing I'd say to my partner is, like, what did I miss? What did you guys do over the weekend? You always wanted to be in the thick of it. Yeah, I think that's what's, what draws you to this type of work in the first place, is you want to be in the thick of it. Sure, sure. Unfortunately, when we get involved in doing good things, that means bad things happen to other people. Sadly. And that's the sad part of the whole thing. You know, for us to go into action and for us to do what we do, that means something bad has to happen to somebody else. So that's the downside. That is the downside. Well, thank you for taking the time today to be with us. Um, it was a pleasure, if not cathartic to some degree. I didn't think that I was going to be uh, as emotional as uh, I felt, but thank you. Thank you for being so open. I think it's really necessary for our listeners, and particularly, as you said, our young people coming in to learn that these are normal feelings and that it doesn't make them weak. It doesn't make mm -hmm. them less than. Oh, sure. You know, all the stigmas that are attached to. Sure, uh, sure, sure. Being you know, human. I, and I can only tell people that uh, if you're having this struggle in your day to day activities on the ambulance and it's getting a little overwhelming and you feel like you're the black cloud and everything you touch is going to hell in a handbasket, well, uh, you know, we have plenty of ways to get help. And self-medicating and alcohol and, and all sorts of uh, things that are self-destructive are not the way to go. Agreed. Um, they should be availing themselves to it. And the supervision should be watching out for their guys and gals. They're the people that are supposed to pick up on these signs and symptoms and partners look out for each other. Well, thank you again for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the FDMY Pro Podcast. I'm Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. For more training and information from our department's subject matter experts, go to fdnypro.org. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. 
And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us, to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to FDNYFoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.